Hello and welcome to episode two of the Carbon Negative Daily. This podcast is a production of Clean Wave Technologies. I'm Jerome Williams and I'm joined by our Chief Technology Officer, Tim Heffernan. Hey Tim, how you doing? Doing well, thanks. Our first episode covered carbon, what it is, why it's essential for life on Earth, and why it's also a problem. And we spoke about the various greenhouse gases that fall under the heading of carbon. Before recording today, Tim and I made a list of topics we'd like to cover in later podcasts, and that's what we'll be going over today. One large topic we forgot to mention, though, is carbon markets and how dairies can participate in them. We'll definitely cover this topic in future episodes. It's very important, and it's key to a lot of these efforts being successful. Okay, so, Tim, the first item on our list is waste. Well, it's certainly the most egregious source of greenhouse gas emissions. So changing the way the wastes are managed is the most productive approach. And that's really what our company is about, changing the way dairy wastes are managed, eliminating lagoon emissions, which is the primary source of emissions, Uh, overall waste management by cleaning, removing solids discharged to the lagoon, we can eliminate lagoon-related emissions. And there are multiple methods that other people are employing to, to do this. There's digesters. In future episodes, we'll talk about the difference between digesters, what Clean Wave has as a solution, and what some other people in the industry are doing to take care of this major problem. Next item we will be discussing is, uh, is feed. Yeah, feed production is definitely a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions, and that that comes in two basic areas. One is enteric emissions, which are emissions from the cows directly uh, associated with their processing of feed. They're the second largest source of methane release on the dairy after the lagoon. So that's that's a very significant factor. The other factor besides enteric emissions is the production of feed. Most dairy cows here are fed grains, at least as a significant part of their diet, unless they are a grass-fed dairy. And there are emissions associated with farming. So land use, land-based emissions is another area that we'll be discussing what those emissions look like at a traditional farm, what they look like from a farm that's that's getting mostly dairy manure, how some of these some technologies that are out there that that may improve that situation, but also we'll be talking about alternate ways of producing feed. I know one of the things we spoke about was indoor growing of feed as a way to reduce enteric emissions, but it also has other benefits. When you think about indoor growing of feed, you're talking about forage. Uh, this might be a barley grass or wheatgrass or a rye grass. These can be grown and fed with the entire plant at only five or six or seven days old. So these are these are plants that only grow in the indoor growing system for less than a week before they're fed. This has a number of benefits. One, there are reports that enteric emissions can be reduced by 24% by feeding fresh forage as opposed to grain. Cost of indoor growing has to be weighed, but uh, it certainly has benefits in terms of greenhouse gas production. But it also has another benefit, and it creates the opportunity, potentially, for an indoor dairy to be a grass-fed dairy. And this has real implications because it affects the, the value of the milk on the backside, the healthfulness of the milk on the backside. The overall benefits 
of indoor growing of forage still have to be quantified. But when you start looking at the opportunity to create an indoor dairy that is grass-fed, eliminating uh, grain from the diet, this could be an increase in revenue in addition to healthier milk. There are additives out there on the market. Mootrol is one that we have come across, which we will uh, check out in a little more depth. Uh, another major one that's out there, a lot of people are promoting is asparagopsis. It's a type of seaweed. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. It's a, it's a macroalgae, um, a red macroalgae. Moving on from feed, and it's very closely related, are uh, soils. Earlier on, you and I spoke about the problems that people using manure for fertilizer might encounter over the course of a number of years. Farmers, both dairymen and farms that are around dairies, often use the dairy manure and the nutrients in that manure for their crops. It makes sense. These are the, the wastes have a lot of nutrients, but they're not particularly high in nitrogen. While they do have a substantial amount, they're not as high as, say, commercial fertilizers that would be nitrogen containing. So when a farm wants to decide how much manure they're going to apply to a field, they would typically base that on the amount of nitrogen that the plants need, that the crops need. Well, in so doing, they end up getting, and that, that nitrogen may all get used over the course of the year um, by the crops, but not all the phosphorus will be used. Maybe not all the sulfur will be used. So these tend to accumulate on ground that's received manure for many years. Uh, phosphorus can get, levels can get high enough that it, what they call souring the soil, basically making that soil no longer suitable for plant production. So it, it's, uh, it can be a problem in the there's certain parts of the country where it's more pronounced than others, but it's definitely a consideration, but something that indoor growing could also address. Uh, just that, you know, there are also some technologies out there that we're aware of that aren't, you know, designed to enhance the nitrogen of the manure. That would help to address this particular problem, means that less manure would be applied because the nitrogen levels are higher. The other couple of items under soils are biological products that will capture carbon and hold it in the soil. Uh, there are companies that are paying farmers, I think it's like $30 an acre, if they switch over to either like a strip-till or a no-till form of farming. If you change over to strip-till or no-till, the carbon is held in the soil rather than released when you're turning the soil over. Yes, what we call regenerative farming would be a no-till type of farming. That certainly reduces the overall carbon emissions from soil. But there are other methodologies that, that are being employed that, that are said to do the same thing. Uh, these generally, I think, are kind of lumped into having the right kind of soil bacteria or simply providing a better environment for the proliferation of those bacteria that will sequester carbon. So you end up with a carbon with a soil that is a, a net carbon sequester, basically increasing the carbon content of the soil, which makes it more fertile as well. Okay. Next we have energy. Now, um, you just told me earlier about a company that sounds pretty exciting called Harvest Thermal, which is kind of switching up how a heat pump works. Um, I know you were checking that out for your to buy for your own home. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? 
Yes, um, this this technology uses basically replaces traditional refrigerants with CO2. Requires a different compressor, but it allows the system to operate over a much much broader range of temperature. So it opens the door for heat pump technology, which is a much more energy efficient technology compared with you know traditional heating methods and cooling methods. This system produces hot water in addition to heating and cooling. It's reported to be able to heat uh, down to temperatures below negative 20 Fahrenheit. That's really a big, big deal for colder climates where heat pumps haven't been as, as broadly applied. It's not really taking any carbon out of the atmosphere. It's just using CO2? It's using CO2, but it reduces uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the heating and cooling system by about 90%. And it reduces energy usage compared with traditional technologies by a third to 40%. The other one we wanted to mention is Bloom Energy. Yeah. Uh, they're focused on providing 24-7 power. Um, so they're, they're really a focused on industrial power needs. And they have very versatile fuel cells that can run on any number of of uh, compounds. It can run on hydrogen and they have an advanced electrolysis system, what they claim is the world's most advanced electrolysis system. You could conceivably use electricity to from the uh, to, to produce hydrogen that is then recovered that energy through the fuel cell. One of their versions can run on methane. It goes back to that whole waste management uh, issue, too, and kind of ties into that. They're definitely a company that we want to learn more about. Um, next on our list is construction. There are a number of, uh, of companies, at least two or three that I'm aware of, that are working on low-carbon concrete because concrete's a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. Let's just explain why that is. I didn't realize myself. I always thought Portland cement was was something that they you know they mined but it's 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 a byproduct right yes it's a byproduct uh, basically it, it starts it, what they're using is calcium oxide that starts with calcium carbonate which is limestone that runs through a calcifier which is a high energy piece of equipment that drives off co2 and it produces calcium oxide, which is then used in Portland cement. If people are unaware, uh, concrete is a combination of stone, sand, and Portland cement. One company is producing an equivalent concrete, Portland cement, out of calcium silicates. They're not driving off CO2 at all. They're not starting from a CO2-containing compound. So they're using a natural calcium silicate which is abundant, and they're using that to make Portland cement. That's a really has a huge potential benefit. I think it's well into development. Whether it's actually producing concrete for commercial applications yet, I'm not sure, but that's something we'll be looking into for a future episode. The last item is direct air capture. Basically, that's pulling that carbon that we've already put up into the atmosphere, out of the atmosphere, and doing something with it. That's how we feel any dairy will get to the negative territory is this last piece of direct air capture. There are a number of technologies work being developed by different companies now looking at different approaches to direct air capture. There are some passive technologies that involve certain rocks. There are active technologies that employ alkalis, alkaline 
compounds can capture CO2 out of the air at relatively low concentrations, and they end up forming carbonates. And there's few options. You can you can do something with that carbonate forming something solid. And that's what really electro swing technologies are focused on. Electro swing play power to a, a grid that would capture CO2 when powered, but when depowered, it would release that CO2. So that allows for you to concentrate CO2 out of the air and to then use it in some process you might have to convert it into a resilient product. What types of products would you use that for? How would that be used? Well, there's there's a company called 12 that uh, is, is basically uh, taking CO2 that they're capturing out of the air and converting that into hydrocarbons, fuels, plastics, the same things that they're using, that we're using petroleum for now. So the possibility of cycling CO2 through the atmosphere and back into the same kind of products we currently use is, is one option. The, uh, another option would be concentrating that CO2 and depositing it in deep uh, deposits, geologic deposits where it's trapped. So the, the, you basically have to look at, you're either trying to get rid of it permanently or you're trying to convert it into something that can confer some, some value back on the process. One of the, one of the real challenges of that, and we can just discuss this in in a future episode, but it's present only at about 400 parts per million. So to have a meaningful carbon capture out of the atmosphere, you have to process a massive amount of air. And that that's something that I've worked on uh, an approach to, to help that. But uh, any way you cut it, you have to process a lot of air. And that can be an expensive process providing that much air over your capture media. You have uh, something you showed me that uh, can help that out, which we can talk about in the future. Yep. All right. I think we've gone through this whole um, the whole list of topics we will be discussing. We'd like to get representatives from companies that are working in these areas on to let them explain what their technologies do and how it might uh, benefit a dairy farm. Absolutely. I think we're pretty good. So that's a wrap for episode two. Okay. We'll see you next time. Thank you. All right.